Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. I have with me Martin Lucas, Alex Mosco, and Paul Alexandra. It's like having Ringo, John and Paul and I feel like the spare wheel. So today we're going to be talking about decision making and we're going to explore things like archetypes, personas, emotion, the psychology of decision making and how subjectivity needs to be managed out of the cell side so that you're really seeing what's going on. So let's start with Martin. Martin, what is an archetype and how do you use them in your world? Two great questions. So it's based on the, it's the Carl Jung model, right? So so he said that we're all driven by different archetypes and he had 12 different archetypes. And the thing to understand about what an archetype is, is that it's not based on emotion, mood, work, life. It's just inherent in all of us. So as you'll know from the sales world, people will be familiar, hopefully familiar with disc profiles. You've used that quite a lot, Marcus, right? Mm-hmm. Right, so you've got disc, you've got Myers-Briggs. And what they, what they teach you about disc is that when under pressure your disc profile is your most dominant setup, right? So if you're D, you're more dominant. If you're I, you're more creative, more ideas, things like that, right? So we know disc from that point of view. And the same is true for archetypes. So you you will default to your most dominant archetype no matter what the situation is, and it drives your decision-making. So it's not about emotions. It's not about the particular moment in time. It's just inherent in, in all of us. So your emotions change, your mood changes, the circumstances changes, but your archetype doesn't really change. And what we do in our in our work is look at how a brand is actually attracting one type of archetype. And it's often a very unconscious thing. So it's the thing that a brand's not aware of because most people don't know about archetypes, right? So how would they know that the CMO or their marketing agency or their CEO is actually making decisions based on their archetypes? And if you think about from a marketing and sales point of view, that's one of the biggest problems is that Mm. we're going out to the world showing imagery, content, people, and language that is much more appealing to us, not necessarily appealing to our marketplace. So that's that's what archetypes are in a really quick way and then what we do with them. Excellent. So, Paul, can we bring you in? When you work with your clients, you work on the flip side, working on the seller side, looking at their archetypes. So help me understand how that works in your in the context of the work that you do. It is literally the, the flip side of what Market Martin just described, which was we use archetypes as a way for leadership teams and businesses to understand themselves better. So um, I think as Martin mentioned, you know, 12 basic archetypes, they essentially, you know, reflect sort of these universal behaviours that, you know, that exist in us as individuals as well as corporations. And when you understand your archetype, you know, what your default behaviours and responses are, you understand yourself, your sense of identity, your tone of voice, you understand what the things that you value with greater clarity. So we'll often use them as a tool to help people reimagine their brand or their identity. So to help build some objectivity into, say, designing your values or designing your purpose. So I use it as a lens. So I'll get, I'll get teams 
to do an archetypes exercise to align amongst themselves on what they believe to be their, their default character. And then we'll use that as a way or an input to help them shape their purpose, their vision, their values, and their, their voice. So a lot of those core attributes around the identity of a brand or an organization. So tell me this, how does this differ from DISC or is it just a refinement? I'm not too familiar with DISC, to be honest, because I don't do okay. so In much. Case, I'll ask Martin. Yes. <laughs> Again, great question, Marcus. So, so think, about, think about, we're talking about decision-making today, right? There's lots of tiers of where your decisions come from, right? So when it comes to DISC, most of the DISC behaviors are very conscious slash subconscious, right? So it means that you can identify them more as the behaviors, right? So you can literally see what you're actually doing and how it affects what you do, right? And from the, I've trained over 5,000 salespeople, not as much as, as you, but that was one of my previous businesses, right? And I find it all the time. It was such an epiphany for people that they just had suddenly had awareness of their most common behaviors in a sales scenario. Yeah. Whereas your archetypes, the vast majority of it, happens in your psyche it's in your unconscious so you can't change it it's not like saying i've got this dominant way of behaving in a sales meeting it's not about that it's about your inherent decision making so what you're what you're actually attracted to so we humans make thirty-five thousand decisions a day right the vast majority are to reject things and to say no so when we're looking at archetypes what you'll find is that let's take a fashion company i use that quite a lot as a just a consistent example right Fashion companies, forget about the clothing, forget about the design of the, the clothing. It's actually the design and the language that they use in their advertising, marketing, emails, content, copy, the whole thing that attracts or pushes people away based on archetypes. So you can cost yourselves a lot of money just by focusing on the wrong archetypes or not having enough range of the types of archetypes that you do. And it's got nothing to do with your product design which is mad, right? Like it's, it's just so deep that we're attracted to things that appeal more to us, first of all, before we even get into considering product and service. I think what's missing here, from my understanding, is can you describe what maybe four archetypes are and what are these psychological drivers? I'm going to use the beautiful and wonderful Alex Moscow as a, as a guinea pig test for this. Are you ready for this, Alex? <laughs> So, Alex, pre-COVID, Alex, yeah, remember when you were allowed out of the house and you could go to, like, your favourite retail store or whatever, right? You remember these days? No. Nope. Amazon. <laughs> remind me, remind me. Right, so, so let's say that um, what, what I want you to do is to get one of your favourite retail stores in your mind, fashion, tech, whatever it happens to be, right? You don't need to tell me who it is. Mm-hmm. When you walk into that store... Have you done a ton of research or you just kind of turn up and you just want to see what they've got? I just turn up, see what they've got. Cool. And in terms of how you like the person to serve you, do you want them to be super interactive with you or do you want to be left alone till that perfect time when you need help or do you want them to leave you alone 100% of the time? The wider the birth, the, the better from my perspective, Martin. Right. And if they do ask you a question, have you ever walked out of a store because it feels like they're telling you what to do? Your perception is that? Or is it more that you just want help with just at a very peculiar moment that they can't figure out? So if they to be unannounced, then I normally look at them like they've got the plague, uh, mumble something about not needing any help and walk off. And <laughs> then suddenly realise that I do need help and then approach them and say, can you help me with something, please? 
Brilliant. Thank you, Alex. So, so what we've got here, Marcus, is Alex is an adventurer from a consumer point of view. So we boiled it down to four types, which is what you're asking for anyway, right? So an adventurer is somebody that hasn't done much research, goes into the store, they're quite happy to discover things for themselves. They want help, but only at the right time, right? The difference is that the other archetypes, particularly you've got in the consumer world, is you've got a planner, and a planner's done bucket loads of research. So they're similar to adventurers. They only want help at that kind of magic moment, but really their help for a planner is based on ego. They're really just looking for affirmation of something they already know. Then you have people like me who are individualists. And remember, this is very much like DISC and any personality profile. You've got different layers, right? So it's not an absolute. So I'm a really, really dominant individualist. And that means if I even get a hint that somebody's telling me what to do, I'll walk out of a store no matter what the circumstances are. And I've actually done that. And then you have sociables who, what I call the weirdos of the world, because they're the complete opposite of me. So that's your archetype talking, right? And they'll, they'll quite happily go into a store, have a lot, wonderful conversation and leave with nothing and be happy, right? So right. what that means is that just in a consumer context, there's four dominant types of archetypes, right? So going back to my previous example, it's not about the clothing, the design of the clothing or anything like that. A planner wants to see detail in the advertising, in the marketing. If they don't have detail like product close-ups and things like that, they're less likely to engage. A sociable wants to see lots of group environment type things. If they don't see that, they're less likely to engage. So this is the, this is the point, is, is, is how we communicate what we are that attracts people or not. And what's super funny is that, not funny, but actually costs people a lot of money, really, I find it funny, is that each brand has got a dominant type of archetype because of how they communicate both their design and their language. If you're not aware of the archetype, you either can't run towards it to give people more of what they want or switch it to give more archetypes what they want so you've got a nice kind of mixed balance with it. So it's, it's really weird because when it comes to decision-making, of course emotion matters in your decision-making. Of course mood matters. But actually at the core, the very starting point is archetypes. If you don't serve the archetype in the right way, then you're missing out, roughly speaking, on 75% of your market on a consistent basis. And in some cases, even worse than that, because they're not really serving any type of archetypes, so it becomes a little bit muddled. So the way that you're attracting people is just not happening whatsoever. So it's a little bit of luck, really. Is there um, an equal balance of adventurer, individualist, and so on? Not necessarily. It, it does change a lot by country culture. So planners are more dominant. You find more planner archetypes in Asia, partly to do with the cultural nuances of communication and behavior, and it changes by different regions. And as for the whole world, the easiest way is to say, yeah, there's 25% of each one, but of course it just depends. It depends on the makeup of the world. So it could be 20, 20, 20, and 40%. But in a rough, rough kind of mathematical way, then 25% is a kind of good rule to look at things with. Okay, it does sound remarkably close to DISC. So dominance would be individualists, uh, socials would be steady relators, adventurers would be influencers, and the detail orientated. What what was that called? Planner. Planners would be high Cs, so compliance, cautious types. So I can see the parallels there, but I, I think it's the nuance where you go down into more details. So then you have the combination of dominant influencer, dominant compliant, dominant, steady relator, and seeing how you mix the, uh, two or even three of these. So do people have a primary, secondary, and tertiary archetype? 
Yeah, they do. The dominant one tends to rule the roost. So with this, you've got the switchability, right? Like I'm a, I'm a high I with a D just right behind it, and S and C are almost non, non-existent, right? The archetype does quite dominate it. But to, to what you said, right, there is a very strong logic between archetype and the disc, right? Because archetype is our decision-making, and the disc stuff is more our behaviors, right, under pressure. Right. One of the things that you and I have discussed offline that I'm, that I'm now bringing to online, right, is, um, <laughs> is the fact that if you understand your market's archetypes, it also means that you can do some very clever mirror and matching between the types of salespeople that you put in front of your customers, right? Excellent. Right? If you've got a disc style, as you said, there's a strong parallel between archetypes, then you can match people up. And it means that there's just a natural connection between people. And when you've got a natural connection, everything that people sell, present, whatever, becomes so much easier because Absolutely. it just matches. You know what I mean? It's such a strong, powerful uh, component. So on that note, let's bring Paul in. Paul, in terms of what you're teaching your clients from the sell side um, mm. to understand about their archetypes and how it flavors the organization, the culture, mm. and the type of message, the products, the R&D that they do. Give us some detail on that. Yeah. Well, look, I often talk about what I do as sort of corporate psychology. Because really, I think, especially within the context of decision-making, the greater clarity that we have about ourselves and our own identity and our role in the world and what we identify with, what we're striving to achieve, the more purposeful are our actions. And so I use archetypes as a way to help build that clarity, really, within an organisation, primarily so that they get a much richer understanding of, of who they are and, most importantly, by doing it as a, a sort of a group exercise with teams, they're able to find that alignment in the room and amongst themselves. So I think where archetypes have been used really poorly, they've been used by branding agencies forever and ever, amen. But out of the 12 archetypes, the classical archetypes, you know, you've got the ruler, the sage, the creator, the innocent, the explorer. And historically, I'll or not historically, I come across a lot of companies that say, yeah, 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 we've been told that we're the magician and that, you know, and we don't really know what to do with that. So we think we should put some wands or magic potions in our ads. And that's sort of missing the point. Archetypes start to serve a purpose when you understand the deeper intricacies of those behaviours. So the role of the magician isn't to sort of trick people through illusion. The role of the magician, if that is your archetype, is actually to illuminate the beauty in the world that is inherent in the world. And so as a brand, that then becomes a role that you realise that you need to to play. And they're not there as a a, a sort of a, a fictional layer. Archetypes are really designed to help people understand their own truth more clearly. I don't know if that sort of answered your question, but I, I, I use them as, a, as a, a clarity and alignment tool with teams. Do you tend to find that people, as they're recruiting, will tend to recruit in their own image? Well, yes and no. Yes, that is, I think, our default. But I think really enlightened leaders understand who they are. They understand what their capabilities, what their superpowers and what their uh, weaknesses are 
and they hire for their weaknesses. So either way, I think it, it comes down to your degree of sort of self-enlightenment, self-awareness, and the amount of ego that you bring to a role or to your role within a business. In terms of how businesses, when they understand their archetype, what sort of changes do you see happen in how they make decisions? So, yeah, so I guess I'm somebody who has never explicitly used archetypes, but kind of subconsciously uses them, right? Because I'm very aware of speaking to clients, clients to really understand them, their motivation and, you know, their why. So what, what triggered their search for the services of my client and, and how they eventually made those decisions. So I've got a question because this is really interesting stuff. With most sales these days, you're going to be interacting with more than one stakeholder. You're going to be interacting with multiple stakeholders. So if, and I, I, it was really interesting what Martin was saying around you kind of select the team to ensure that they that they uh, are optimized for the archetypes that they come up against. Does that mean that you need to have a kind of multi-archetypal sales team to so that you can have the right interaction with those multiple stakeholders? Because we know that with you know an IT sale and a B2B, you're going to be dealing with technical people who a lot of the time are very detail-orientated but also you're going to be dealing with decision makers higher up the chain who are going to be less detail-orientated, more big picture and less technical and more business issue driven. So so my question is, how do you confront that uh, multiplicity? Martin, do you want to take this one? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever seen The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas? No. There's a scene in it where the governor says, I love doing a little sidestep. And he turns to the side, but his hat stays in the same place. Uh, I just had that image float through my mind. Yeah. I was there last night, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to Alex's question. So, so Alex, I think you're right, right? It, it's, it's the dimensions of what you're selling, because if you're doing like a complex B2B enterprise sale, right, what do you get in that scenario, like the one that you were just speaking about? is you generally get a different specialist, right? So your specialist can be different archetypes that support the core salesperson. So absolutely, you can do that kind of mirror and matching into a lot of depth. And if, if anyone's going, come on, that's ridiculous, Marty. If you think about what people do in my, my history working with huge B2B software sales, it's very common to have different types of specialists, but we look at what their skill set is, not their thinking style, not their decision-making style. So there's a very yeah. strong logic to it. Now, if you were further down the chain, Alex, if you're selling HR software, you're only going to have really one person interacting with one person. And there'll be other decision makers involved, but generally it's a one-to-one sale. And your archetype-to-archetype matchup is a lot simpler there. So to your question, I think that there's a lot of validity to it. And I think a lot of people, even my experience at DISC, which has been taken by over 65 million people, people still reject it. People still step away from this because... Partly because it's a, an ego defense thing, right? Nobody wants to think that they don't have enough free will that they can't adapt to every scenario. But the rea- the reality is, are you going to win more if you put people like me in front of people like me? Of course you are, because you understand where the decision-making comes from. So it just becomes a natural component of it. So you're always going to win more like that. So I think everything is possible, but you've just got to accept the logic of how decisions get made in the first place, right? Well, I think this comes 
down to, from a sales perspective, and again, shoot me down if I'm um, getting this wrong, but I think salespeople need to be chameleons and they need to be able to adapt to sell to whomever they are in front of or speaking to at that moment. Um, and I think what certainly from my experience, and I've trained thousands of salespeople over the years, is you need to have a strong level of situational awareness, but you also need to understand how you respond when things are going well and when you're under pressure. You need to be able to read the situation. And salespeople who can't read the situation will only typically sell to people just like themselves. And they won't really sell, they'll take an order. So my question is this, can you learn to behave in the way of the archetype that you're in front of? Paul. And I think that actually, you know, you know, you know my point of view, Marcus, I, I, I think that whilst I believe in building purposeful teams and purposeful businesses, I think that it's really imperative to design out the subjectivity in a lot of the decision-making process. And the reason for that is I think that when you start to calibrate a sales team, a leadership team's perspective of who they are, as well as who our customers are, then everyone starts to work in a more aligned fashion. So you have less people going off piece. Your decisions are more aligned. These tools liberate autonomy. You know, they allow people to make decisions more independently, but in a much more aligned fashion. So, yeah, I think that, um, I think it's really critical that actually, um, you know, businesses work hard to create the tools for alignment, you know, whether they be archetypes as a way to, to help businesses understand themselves better and understand the role that they need to play uh, in the world or whether they're used as a way for teams to understand customers better. Um, I think either, either, however you use them, I think what essentially it boils down to is this sort of objective lens that can start to help calibrate everyone's perspective in the business. And I think it's really, it's everyone, everyone who's part of an organisation, it's their responsibility to look at the world through that lens. You know, if they're signing up to be part of a team or part of an organisation, I think part of that, part of that pledge should be, yes, I agree to see the world through this uni universal lens. I'm part of this. Martin, t tell me this. If the CEO or the CMO or the chief revenue officer has a particular archetype, does that stamp on the culture of the, the organisation and thereby focus their decision-making on aspects that may not be in alignment with who their customer is. A hundred percent. So to essentially going back to Paul's point, it depends on the, the individuals you're dealing with. And it'd be interesting to hear Alex's point of view once I'm done with this as well, because it's a huge part about what I always describe as is a is really unusual rare skill set of being able to extract that kind of golden reality from from customers and case studies and things like that. Because the challenge that you've got with it is a game of awareness. So to Paul's point, a good leader has enough awareness of themselves, of, of their strengths, weaknesses, and where opportunity sits for how they recruit, right? A poor leader, in this sense, 
doesn't have awareness that their decision making is just about them and how they see the world. But everything, if they, if you don't have the awareness of it, and I've come across this time and time again, the bigger the consumer brand, the more it sells clothing, the more likely this is the case, is that their dominant archetype is affecting their decision making, how they go to market, their advertising, ah. all of it. Tell me this. Do you sometimes see where a new leader comes in that, and they're not aware of archetypes, that they're the great hope for a business and you know they're, they're hiring someone who's meant to be a heavy hitter and their archetype is in contrast with their target market and suddenly sales start to plummet? Yeah, 100% because what you've got is the, the way that everything works in the brain. I call it the efficiency trick, right? So the brain wants to automate as much as possible. So again, it's about ego and awareness of self because if what you've done in company A was a roaring success and you try and repeat it in company B without being aware of the difference of company B, then you can cause as many problems as the solutions you solve because you're making one massive assumption and that's that you're serving the same types of customers. And that's where a lot of people go wrong because if you move from, let me just use the fashion examples, right? If you use from one billion dollar fashion company to another, you think you understand fashion, but the types of buyers, the archetypes, who you're attracting, what the brand means to people is dramatically different. Even if the price point's the same, it's dramatically different. So you could be literally serving a completely different audience. So by just mapping what you think you already know, you set yourself up to fail. It's what I call the, the curse of LinkedIn, right? You've got how many millions of coaches that are on LinkedIn saying they've got the solution to everything? There are more coaches than flies. Right. So, and actually what you've got is a great example is that most of the time you'll hear people giving out advice where they say, I did this before, so therefore you should. Right. It's just basically saying that I've had a modicum of success and I'm not criticizing people for having a modicum of success, but you can't then just repeat that thing to everybody and expect the same results because there's too many variables. And this archetype component is a huge part of it. So, Alex, let's bring you in on this. My favorite poem is This Be the Verse by Philip Larkin. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They don't mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had and they add some extra just for you. So let's have a look at why it's so hard to manage human relations and why it's so important to speak to your customers in that process Mm. to ensure that at least you have the sense that or at least your customers feel, that you understand them, that you feel what they feel, that you hear what they have to say. I had a really good conversation, really interesting conversation this week with a chap who was one of the project leads on the creation of the BBC iPlayer. And he's uh, currently doing some really interesting work in AI around social listening, right, which is essentially a big data projects, pulling from social media, trying to understand what your customers want and what they're talking about. And it's useful in a number of environments, but specifically in customer services, uh, you know, so that you can spot if people are unhappy quickly. And also through product development, so you can look at what people are asking for and what they're not asking for, right? And he had a really good line, which I loved, and we've talked about this before. But he said that companies aren't set up to listen. And I think this is really important, this, this idea of listening, right? Asking good questions and listening. And what he's found is 
that you know what the way that people typically use big data is they they subconsciously look at the data and they pull what they believe you know based on their own beliefs that the, the customer is saying right and they're looking for patterns that they recognize so they're, they're seeing themselves in the customer so typically they're not pulling the most optimized data out and, and and actually what he's doing is he's not looking at the macro conversations so he's not looking at the obvious stuff he's looking at the, the micro conversations and he's a, an expert in language so he's looking at multiple different streams of conversation in different languages and he's specifically looking at sentiment and what's interesting about what he's doing is he's finding that actually those micro conversations, so the stuff happening around the edges are, are typically the most interesting because if somebody has a problem with a company or with a particular product, then that conversation can happen at the edge, but it can build and build. And if you're not monitoring it, then uh, then you don't see the see it coming, right? And this big impact it can have. And we were t- kind of talking about it around COVID. And, and can you imagine if people were able to pick up kind of micro indicators? and see how that builds. So, so it's really about coming and listening openly as possible without bringing any of your stuff to those conversations, right? So designing questions that design your assumptions and your bias out. And that typically means not asking about your products and services. So when you're talking to your clients, you're trying to really get a feel for their trigger moments, the reasons that they buy, so not not necessarily from you initially, but certainly what what were the what's the problem that they've got, and what's the thing that motivated their the sales process in the beginning, right? Rather than talk about your stuff, what you're going in there to say is right. Tell me a little bit about you. So who are you? What do you do? What are your likes, dislikes? What's the stuff that pisses you off? What are your concerns, your frustrations? So you're kind of building a cloud of the kind of person they are. So this is why, you know, we don't necessarily bring archetypal work explicitly in, but we are searching for that kind of information. And then what we're asking is really, look, what was it that motivated you to start looking for these kind of services? Because I want to understand what those trigger points were. So essentially, what was it that was so bad that you needed somebody else to come and help you? And what was the process you used to look for those people? What was the stuff you were looking for? What were your personal tick boxes? What was it about my client specifically that you liked, that you connected with, that you, that you heard them say, that you saw? And so all of these questions, we're, we're kind of, it's, it's kind of like having a blank canvas and slowly painting in the detail. And I think the reason why we're successful at that and why a lot of companies struggle is because actually we go in there uh, and, and don't have the bias of being the seller. We're not trying to sell anything. We don't, we're not caught up in the company culture. And we're just going in there trying to find out. And, and it's interesting, something that you've always said, you know, the less technical information that a salesperson has, the better, because then they're kind of not equipped to answer questions and they're equipped to ask questions. Well, the power of product knowledge and market knowledge is not to use it in the sale. It's purpose is to help you ask better questions. So we have this concept, the dummy curve. When you first start out, you know nothing. So when a prospect or a customer comes up to you and uh, you're talking to them, then you ask them lots of naive questions. The curse comes with product knowledge because you you, you have some beginner's luck because you're asking these naive questions and they feel heard and understood. And 
then what happens is you start telling them about why your carbunculator is better than the defibrillator and you start getting into tedious technical detail. I always equate it to showing photos of your ugly children to strangers and wondering why they glaze over. Now, as your income starts to plummet, if you're smart, you'll start to recognize that the one constant in all of your dissatisfying relationships is you. And net result of that is that you should look in the mirror. If your sales aren't working, always look in the mirror and always look upstream. What did I say or do or fail to say or do 30, 60, 90 seconds before that caused the conditions for the buyer to resist? So we we see this happening all the time. And in fact, Sandler has a rule, which is uh, never get between the buyer and their decision to buy. How do you do that? The first thing you have to do is shut the fuck up. The problem is I I have never, I've never listened my way out of a sale. I've talked my way out of plenty. Now, the average salesperson sees silence as an opportunity to fill the void with the sound of their own voice. And in fact, the average length of time salespeople can stay silent is 0.6 of a second. That's the average. Now, isn't that terrifying? It's definitely terrifying. I think one of the things that is always good advice for salespeople is you shouldn't underestimate when a customer starts talking, especially at the first meeting, and they're talking and talking and talking, it often means that they've done the research, they've done the background, they're almost ready to buy, but they've got to talk themselves into a relationship with you and a validity with you. So I think that's what the salespeople fear. They're like so caught in the, I've got to say what I've got to say, I've got to do my pitch and stuff, right? Whereas a lot of the times, as you say, just be quiet and just let let it roll. I had the penny drop big time yesterday. I was having my coaching call with my coach. And... I suddenly realized where millions of pounds were flushed down the swanee. And he said, sometimes, you know, customers will come to you and they'll say, I want flip it, I want flap it, and I want flop it. And all you need to do is say, yeah, you can have that. I mean, how simple is that? It can't be that simple, but actually it can be. Then what you're going to do is you're going to build that relationship. And I think the problem that I see happen all the time is that salespeople think it's about the technique. The technique is a shield. It's a platform. It's not a weapon. If you try and do selling to people, then that's where you become the obstacle. And it's really important. I mean, one of the things that I love about what I've learned over the last 17, 18 years is that the less I do and the more I have my prospect work to sell to me as to why they need my help, the more successful I am. And there are half a dozen questions that work really beautifully. And it's to build on Alex's point and to build on his point earlier about listening to those micro conversations. If you haven't read it yet, Martin Lindstrom's book, Small Data, is a must. Okay. Now, these questions, really simple. So, Martin, what's the biggest problem you're facing at the moment? What is it about that problem that you find most difficult? You said earlier you wanted to achieve X. What, What keeps you from achieving it? What does that obstacle prevent you from doing, from 
to achieve X. How is that? What do you do today? What do you want to do about it? And this is a risky question to add on at the end, but it may sometimes help tip the balance as well. What's the worst that could happen if you do nothing or if you pick the wrong solution? Now, how hard is that? They're all perfectly reasonable, innocuous, worthy questions. But I think too often, salespeople bringing their disc style, bringing their archetype to bear, will try and push, they'll try and encourage, they'll try and convince. And I think we forget, you cannot convince anyone to do anything ever. They have to decide for their own reasons why they want to buy. And it's your job to facilitate that, to be a partner in that conversation. It's not your job to sell to them. People hate to be sold. They love to buy. And do, do, uh, don't you find that the, the company, the sales company, is kind of complicit in that happening in terms of the way that the training instruct, is structured? So that it seems to me that the moment a salesperson is recruited, the first thing they're put into is product training. Don't get me started. It's shocking. And you, you'd have thought after all this time of it not damn well working. I mean, bear in mind, get this statistic. On average, seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting. As marketeers, they must be out there ripping their hair out, thinking, why do we even bother? Seven out of eight. On average, seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting. Goodness. And KPMG did a study... I think it was in 2018, 2019, where they found that the average length of time that a seller provided value in front of a CXO was have a stab in the hour. What do you think the average time to value was? It's going to be low, right? I think we're all hesitant because we're... <laughs> I'm thinking less than a minute, but it's going to no, be no, low, no, isn't no, it? What is no, it? No, no. In fairness, the average was six minutes. Wow. Can you imagine? A CXO who's responsible for a three, five, 10 billion PL, and you get six minutes of value in every hour. No wonder most salespeople, first of all, leave with a boot print on their ass, and then they never get invited back. Yeah, it's funny, right? The, um, the Challenger sale, such an amazing book, and the impact, the understanding of it was never implemented into, into businesses for what it actually meant, in my opinion. And okay. to to both of your points, challenge that you've got is the, I call it creativity and discipline, right? So the last time all of us were together, we were talking about permission. And I think Alex nailed it, right? Like too many businesses are so focused on product training that it generates a lot of inherent selfish behaviors that we're actually encouraging people to have. And it's a control thing. It's because we're not, we're not giving permission to our staff, to our salespeople to go out and think for themselves. And the way that I've always balanced it is the simplicity of creativity and discipline. So the discipline is we have a process, we understand our product, why people buy it. But the creativity part is being able to think in the moment for what people actually need and to ask really simple but powerful questions, which is the one that you went through. And I, I still find that coming at this from a advertising and marketing consumer world, right, where I spend most of my time at the moment, and a rich history on the B2B side, which is where I used to spend most of my time, is that I just find that people are just caught in this, in this selfish way of saying, look at me, let me talk about me. 
here's my product, me, 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 me. And that, that's the biggest problem you've got with advertising and marketing. Um, and it's the same with sales, right? I agree. I, I interviewed Mark Schaefer, who, uh, again, if you haven't read it yet and you're a salesperson, you need to read marketing books. And this is one that you absolutely must read. It's called Marketing Rebellion by Mark Schaefer. And uh, in fact, uh, another one that you must read is called The Context Marketing Revolution by Matthew Sweezy. Both of them talk about humanizing the marketing, personalizing it, bringing it down to the moment, the individual interaction with the customer. So Paul, let's bring you back in at this point. When you're working with your clients, first of all, if they're not listening, paying attention, being fully present, then how does that get between the prospect and their decision to buy? Oh, it just leads to kind of all levels of inefficiency. I mean, it's that alarming statistic that you just rattled off a seven out of eight. Well, as I was just as listening to your talk it, it, and just sort of reflecting on um, some of the observations that I've made from, you know, I do a lot of the work, a lot of work with technology or tech-enabled businesses. And, you know, in this, in this age that we live in, this age where, you know, most businesses on the planet, most leaders have heard the words customer experience. Most humans have heard of the concept of human-centered design. And yet, you know, all of these things, these tools, these modes of thinking, approaching, problem-solving, challenges – that have proven themselves to be true and accurate in product design, people don't apply these same principles to relationship design. And, I mean, even just the concept of have a hypothesis, listen to your customers, test something, see how it goes, and then refine it. The general basic cadence of software design, and if you were to apply that same methodology to relationship design, I think that relationships, especially at a sales level, would be so much richer and so much more effective. You know, it, it's just astounding that that we don't, we sort of don't look at the breakthroughs in other categories and apply them to other aspects of our life. Anyway, that was my little rant. I don't know if I answered your question, Marcus, but I feel better for it. <laughs> I got a question for you, and, and it's kind of for everybody, but and it's it's slightly controversial, and I wonder if it's a if it's right, right? I might be just assuming something here that's not true, right? But is it fair to say that most people think they're selling a product or service, and essentially they're not? That's the problem that when they go in, so like they think, well, we're yes, yes and yes, you're absolutely right. Right. So what are they actually selling, right? Because it's a bit like poker, isn't it? You don't play the cards, you play the person. So is that what we're saying, that actually you're selling the person and that's what you need to get your head around? I think what people forget is that all of us want a better future. And all we sell is change. Now, what's interesting is there was a meta study done that I read about 15 years ago. And it was, what's mankind's greatest fear? And it's the future because with it comes uncertainty. And uh, Woodrow Wilson said it beautifully, if you wanna make enemies, recommend change. The problem is that we actually embrace change as a species, but only if we feel like we're making that as a conscious choice. 
that we're, we're part of that process. Look at how we've adapted brilliantly once as a species, once we've recognized and we accepted that COVID was a situation. Many people didn't adapt well to that, and um, you know, they exposed themselves to all, all sorts of problems. But you know, change programs, 88% of change programs fail because users are not involved. Products that fail, fail because users, customers, were not consulted in the process. They haven't got their sticky little fingerprints all over them. I'm in the process of designing something at the moment, and I'm speaking to the people who are going to use it in order to understand precisely what it is they need. And you look at the most successful tech companies, the most successful brands, um, who, wherever they are, they're always talking to their customer. They talk to their raving fans. They talk to their detractors. They talk to people who are changing their behavior. They talk to the people who buy the most from them. The ones that struggle are the ones, uh, my, my pal Jerry Lemberg, rest his soul, used to describe, he was a, a VC for many years. And you know, he was one of the first investors in Intel, in Microsoft, in Oracle. He knew his stuff. And he described entrepreneurs as people who created elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. And I think what you find very often is that salespeople hear what they want to hear. They have these biases built in and they listen with happy ears. And they find a way of, through the confirmation bias of a prospect asking for a proposal, thinking, for example, that that is a positive step, when actually it's a way of getting them out of the office in a polite way, rather than telling them to go and boil their head. And salespeople are often trapped by habit and by behavior. What you see are policy frameworks. You see habit. Um, you know, pr processes that are not constantly reviewed become habit. And you're a slave to your habits. If they're not good ones, then you need to find some good ones or else they will get you into trouble. And so what happens is time and time and time again, they keep going out there and doing the same old thing. Marketeers do this as well. And Mark Schaefer made a fabulous observation. The evidence is there, but the results are not. Keeping beating your head against the same bit of brick wall and complaining that the brick is hurting your head uh, is an act of idiocy and insanity. And we see this time and again, to build on Paul's point, all the time we see salespeople and sales organizations going out there and doing stupid things. And I'll finish my rant on this. I was speaking to a client earlier this week and his frustration is reaching boiling point because the company isn't doing so well. He smashed his target, but the company isn't doing so well. So he's got a manager who's putting him under pressure to go and offer an 80% discount on a product that the customer is not ready to buy. So what's going to happen, guaranteed, is he's going to be forced to do this. He'll then go and make that offer. They will reject it. And when they're ready to buy, Alex, what do you reckon they're going to come back and ask for? 80% discount. There we go. Yeah. So the problem here is that we are stupid as a species. 0.003% of us are fucking brilliant. Okay. But the majority really don't understand human beings, which is building on Martin's favorite point, that humans don't understand humans. So let's bring... 
Martin back in at this point. In terms of how we get in the way of our customers and their decision to buy because of that lack of understanding by not designing out subjectivity, what have you seen as a seller that salespeople and their managers tend to do in order to get between the prospect and their decision? I'm going to try and answer your question, but I'm just overloaded with awesome. (laughs) The stuff that you guys have just gone through is just phenomenal, right? So to Paul's point, I think that every type of model gets abused, whatever it is, whether um, whether it's UX, whether it's CX, whether it's the new way to think, whether it's the new way to change, whether it's the challenge of sale, whatever. And it generally gets abused because people take it down to the lowest common denominator, and follow a capitalist model with it, and they lose the free thinking capability. It happens with mental health services. Like I know one in the UK that's got contract for all mental health, right? So if you go to your doctor and you say, I don't feel very good, what does the contract do? It actually says that you should give people in-person therapy. But if the person doesn't mention they feel suicidal, then you can put them on an online CRM system, and that CRM system has no follow-ups and no reminders and when somebody feels difficult in a mental health scenario they're not going to remember and if they don't follow the follow-ups then a letter goes to the doctor saying that they can't be helped that's a great example i know it's not business in in itself but it's a business that's human behavior right it's just that human behavior is that ultimately you'll abuse something one of the guys on my team was deeply involved in the jamie oliver restaurants and stuff and Jamie Oliver restaurants years ago was actually why one of the hundred of the hundred plus different areas that I wanted to investigate about why do people destroy what was awesome? Because what I spotted within six months of Jamie Oliver's being launched or, or being opened where I lived at the time was that it went from being really fabulous to suddenly something changed about the quality of what they were doing. And it came out a few years later that what happened was that they started doing central processing. There's a barbecue place in London that I used to love, expanded to a number of sites, and something changed about the quality, and I found that they were doing central processing for the barbecue. So it used to be done on site, now it's been centralised, and the food just diminishes a little bit. And these are the things that people should be in control of, but they don't measure and they don't understand. So from my perspective, I think that when we follow a model, we don't really because we lose the thinking component of it and we lose the quality part. And Napoleon Hill talked that business should be about quantity of service, quality of service, and spirit of service. And at best, businesses today follow quantity. Quality gets lost by a a nuance of what it is. And I think spirit's just a forgotten component to it. And going back to your question, is that Napoleon Hill also talked about faith versus fear. And there's a lot of people that are doing things with too much control in their system, whether it's sales, advertising, marketing, leadership. And if you put too much fear in, you're doing like the media model. And to your point, Marcus, I understood what the opportunity was of COVID, not in terms of the health component, right? I knew that if I doubled down and and looked at what my business did and we looked at revenue protection, we'd be in a much better state. And then fast forward a few months, and the past few months have been difficult from a business point of view, but we've got a really healthy pipeline and I'm not celebrating this at all, but there's a ton of redundancies and there's going to be a ton more coming, right? So businesses are going to be looking for solutions based on revenue protection. And now our pipeline is starting to pick up even further because we've laid it out and now people are coming to us because they know the problem that we can solve. 
And that's where I think people run into a lot of issues, that if you just make everything about a process, what does the process do? It makes an assumption that the people that you serve are always going to be the same. And the, the way that I describe B2B, and Alex and I have had a lot of fun with this with clients as well, is that B2B decision-making, forget about archetypes, I'm talking more about the emotional, the in-moment, the conscious triggers, right? Is that most B2B decision-making is based on two different factors. One is I'm ambitious and I want to get promoted. And the other one is I'm a fraud. I want to make sure that I keep my job. If you can address both of them and they're, they're similar, they're on the same axis, then you're always going to win a lot more. You just have to figure out what it is the person's wanting from your interaction and that relationship with them. Because again, the product scenario that we've spoken about is that if you just sell product, you're selling business benefits. Whereas in B2B, and obviously it's even more in consumer, right? We're buying on the emotional need of the problem that you solve for me. Can I get promoted? Can I defend myself and keep my job? What's the emotional gains of buying this consumer product? That's the problem that you ultimately solve. The fact that you can solve a problem for the business in a B2B sense is only the, the tick box that allows the person to validate why they're buying the service, but it's not the actual reason why. Uh, absolutely not. I mean, I, I've sold my training on the strength that someone wanted to buy the flat next door so that they could knock the wall through and extend their modern art collection. There are two sets of twins out there because the mothers wanted IVF treatment and they couldn't afford it. So they wanted to sell more so that they could afford it. There's a horse called Jacob bouncing around fields who would have been turned into glue and pedigree chum. He's still around nine, 10 years later because uh, his owner couldn't afford the 80 grand vets bill uh, when he went lame. School fees. These are all examples of the real reason why people buy. My favorite story was we're working with Oracle and one sales guy from there received an RFP from a German company in Germany that was completely an SAP house. And he wasn't going to respond to it because there was no point. And his boss has said, well, you've got to be in it to win it. And this is the exception that proves the rule. Uh, anyway, he submitted at, at list price, and uh, a week later, this brown envelope lands on his desk saying, congratulations, you've been selected. And it was, it, yeah, he was, anyway, after six months, he said to the CTO, Hans, tell me something. You're a German company in Germany with SAP, and SAP has a directly competing module with what we have at Oracle. Why didn't you go with SAP? And the guy gets up, shuts the door, and said, officer record. In two years' time, I plan to leave this company and I have no Oracle implementation on my CV. Three million euro to improve his CV. That's the personal driver. And we forget that, or too often we forget, that uh, we're selling to human beings. They're not walking uh, ATM machines. And, uh, you know, it, it's so crucial that we understand that people buy for their reasons, not your reasons. People come to work for their reasons, not your reasons. People sell for their reasons, not your reasons. And so often in the recruitment process, and this is a fundamentally important thing that's missed, is you do not focus enough time in the recruitment process understanding the personal drivers, the motivation of the people that you're hiring. And to build on that, who do you serve? You serve the customer, but you also serve your employees. You serve your partners. You serve your suppliers. And I think a really enlightened organization 
pays heed to all of those different components. Because if you change one part of a system and you don't change the others, then the system goes out of whack. So, Paul, let's bring you in on this again. How do you make sure that leadership becomes enlightened and it recognizes all of those moving parts? And how do you get them to buy into something that is quite complex and scary and break it down into components that they can integrate at their own pace, but also uh, maintaining their own cultural values and so on? How long do we have? Uh, um, 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I'm sure that we must have covered this uh, amongst us, but um, the most critical factor for any, any kind of change is genuine intent. And I think that you, 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 have a genu- you develop a genuine intent because you face some kind of existential crisis and you believe that you have no other option COVID hits and if you don't change, you won't exist or a new competitor hits the market or someone's ripped off your code. If we don't change, we won't exist. The other form is where you you reach some sort of self-induced moment of enlightenment where you're not necessarily facing an existential crisis, but you realise that you've hit some kind of plateau within an organisation, within your own growth. And that actually to continue to grow, you need to reimagine yourself and you're prepared to take the risk as a leader. Um, They're they're sort of the two profiles that I tend to come into contact with. And I think without the intent, it doesn't matter how robust the tools or how robust the training or the process, it'll just be a nice culture exercise, culture building exercise. Which will fail. Which will always fail. You know, and so I think, yeah, intent, motivation, making sure that that actually exists. I guess it goes back to those six questions that you ask, you know, which is, do you have a problem worth solving that you intend to solve or have a desire to solve? I think if if you could answer in the affirmative for that, I think then the, the rest of it is, I would say, an infinitely easier process. You know, and I actually don't really care what tools you use to understand your customer better, understand yourself better, just so long as there is the intent to go on that journey. I think there's a lot of great tools out there, whether it's DISC, whether it's Archetypes, whether it's McKinsey's, whether it's me, it doesn't really matter. But I think the the key ingredient that's often missing is a genuine intent. uh, Sorry to cut across you. I think there's there's a couple of other points that are really worth bringing in. Where you have too much of an imbalance towards a particular type. I think what you lack there is diversity and lack of diversity means that you operate through blinkers. Um, yes. Don't see the whole picture. So uh, again, if you want to create change, it's important that you get perspective from various stakeholders, whether they're suppliers or customers, whether they're employees and you know whether they're uh, C-suite or down to the janitor. It's important that you bring in lots of opinion. And with genuine intent, you have to look for willingness to change over even more than ability. It's you know, in the same thing with buying and selling. If they have the ability to buy, but not the will, no amount of pushing is going to make any difference. They're just going to you know, fob you off or find a way of getting rid of you. And I think to build on your point, 
you need to be ready to kill your babies. You need to look at what you're doing and ask yourself the question, is what I thought was true still true? What evidence do I have? Because so much in marketing, there's some brilliant stuff going on in marketing, but it's overwhelmed, I believe, by an awful lot of crap out there because people aren't looking at the evidence, uh, what they're seeing in the evidence. And I think this is partly a byproduct of big data is that they're looking for the evidence that will confirm their current position. And they don't let go of their deeply held belief um, about what who their customer is or what they're driven by. And so they're dragged over the coals. Martin, let, let's bring you in on this. When you're working with your clients and you're uh, running your algorithms and your, your processes to identify what's going on, what's really going on in the customer's mind and in their marketplace, what type of resistance do you get, even though you're presenting the evidence? It's a good question. I'll start with things that I've learned, right? So I'm in the sixth year of doing this and and years three and four was building the product. And what does it mean when you're actually building a product is you're actually trying to understand how to serve the market. And that was when I got really, really deep affirmation, much deeper than what I realized about how little humans understand about themselves. So forget about why don't humans understand humans? Why don't humans understand themselves? So actually what we had to do was a lot of change. We used to talk a lot about unconscious data. We used to talk a lot about irrational mathematics. And I couldn't understand the problem I was falling into. And of course, you end up falling into that trap of do as I say, not as I do, right? So I realized that I needed to step away from talking about things that made people think about themselves because that was the buyer problem that we were running into. So what I was doing during those two years was not just building the product, but figuring out how to service the world with it and therefore how to sell it, right? And that was the problem that I ran across was that as soon as you start talking about emotions or feelings um, or archetypes, uh, if you make that too dominant, then it pushes people away because people don't want to admit what they don't understand. It scares them. Right. And if you ask people to examine themselves, particularly men, particularly key psychology, so there's a difference between those two things. So by men, I obviously mean the gender. Right. So that is a learned behavior in itself. It's a patterned model. There's partly nurture, partly nature with it. And then you have he psychology, which is not about gender in itself. It's just about the behaviors that make up society. And a huge part of that is he psychology. So he psychology is very practical, it's numbers focused, it fears emotion, it wants numbers, it wants data, right? So we had to dial back the emotional component about what we do. The reality about what my organization does is we do a ton in she psychology because she psychology, think about this and just pause on this, learned behavior, but it's about relationships, emotional intelligence, connectivity, it's about people, it's about connecting the dots. And that, if you replay all the things we've spoken about today, is all evidenced by things that we don't do in the world today. She psychology is not a skill set that is embraced. He psychology is. And that's where people run into lots of problems. We've got a process. We've got a disruption plan. We've got a change program. We've got transformation. Why doesn't it work? Because we don't account for the human aspect of it. That's where process fails. That's where model fails. It's the same issue. And you can take that same issue and look at, as I said, change programs, transformation, sales training, advertising, marketing, seven out of eight meetings don't work, first meetings, right? 
98.39% of adverts don't work. This same problem comes up all the time and it's the same issue. The core structure of it is that humans don't understand themselves and if they did, if they don't understand themselves, they don't understand each other and it's like a triple threat of stupidity, really. Um, that's what it comes down to for me. I can't even remember the question. That was just like a mini rant. Did I answer it? <laughs> I can't remember the question you've asked. <laughs> so let's build on uh, one other thing as well. I think... People behave different or often behave differently when they're in front of people and when they're not. And I'm curious to see, and Alex, I'd like you to come in on this. When you're observing the conversations that you have with customers of your clients, how are those conversations different to when they are speaking to the supplier themselves? That's a great question. And I think that the the main difference I'd imagine I mean from my own experience of being in sales situations and then having these conversations on behalf of my clients is that there's a level of honesty that you get that you wouldn't necessarily get in a sales conversation where there's a certain amount of defensiveness and guarding up to ensure that you know the buyer doesn't potentially say something that they shouldn't or, you know, that the give away the game or make it easy for the salesperson. So there's kind of a, an interesting game of cat and mouse potentially going on with sales conversations. Now, when I'm having these conversations with clients, clients, the most important thing is that you first of all need to open the, the client up, right? You need to create an environment where you can have a really good conversation. And so, you know, we start as if it's just a friendly chat and I find out as much as I can about them. And, you know, we, we create that openness through that. What's interesting is the result, right? People tend to turn around to me after those conversations, right? And I'm not selling them anything, but they turn around and said, you know what? I really enjoyed that. That was such a good conversation. I've actually learned some things about myself had value for me, right? What were doing a case study conversation with one of your clients, Marcus, a number of years ago? We went through the process and we talked about them and the, the problems they were facing and, and how you'd help them and where they got to. And the client turned around to me after the conversation and he said, what to me? And I'm like, why? Well, you know, I don't know what you mean. What do you mean? He said, just, it was just so eye-opening. There were some things I didn't realize about myself, the stuff I didn't realize about my business. It was so interesting. Could you do it for me, please? And actually... As I say, I'm never selling during those conversations. In fact, at the end of those conversations, I'll typically ask, you've told me these things about my client. You've, you've shown me the problem they solved, the value they added. Is there anybody that you know that could benefit also from these services? So I'm trying to get actually get referral at the end of the, uh, the conversation for my client because it's a really, I've created a really interesting environment in order to do that. But actually in this one situation, because of the questioning and because of the interest and the value of it, I actually picked up a client myself, right? And so, and it, what it taught me was that whenever you're in a sales situation, just seek to understand first, right? Before selling your stuff, seek to understand the person. Let them know that you, you authentically want to understand them and that you're interested. And actually, by, by having those conversations, they will see value in you. And then they will, then the conversation will spin around and they'll start asking you about what you do, right? 
it's been a really interesting conversation this morning. I've learned a huge amount. This wasn't an area that I, I particularly knew much about. And I think the central issue is this, is, that, is this belief that we sell products and services, right? And, and, and I would urge anybody, the people listening to our conversation this morning to look at their website, right? Because it's the most <laughs> things that, 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 that a, a consumer will see, whether B2B or B2C. And I bet you 99.9% of websites are organized around the products and services that that company sells, right? So we are such and such company and we specialize in this and that and the other, right? And actually, and no wonder they're struggling to differentiate, right? Because you look at anybody else's website that, that sells the same thing as you and they're organized around exactly the same elements and therefore they say exactly the same thing. They just say it slightly differently with a bit more flower or whatever it is, right? And actually what you need to do is you need to organize your business, your marketing and your sales around the customer. And I think this is something, again, that I, I always come back to the stuff that you told me, Marcus, and, and this is really important. The 30-second commercial, which is where the, the elevator pitch, where you're selling yourself and your services. And that elevator pitch has nothing to do with me or with my products and services. And it has everything to do with the wants and needs of the people that I'm selling to. And most specifically, and most importantly, the problem that they're facing. And in fact, Marcus, give, give us a great 30-second commercial because it, as, as an example, because I think it's such an... It's kind of the thing that will help people to most understand what I'm saying. Well, I'll give the framework first. It's we help job title in industry or geography who emotion word one with symptom one, others emotion word two with symptom two, and a few emotion word three with symptom three, and then we end on a negative question. And it goes something like this. Paul... Typically, we help CMOs who are frustrated that they're spending money on advertising, on marketing, and it's just not hitting the mark. Others are telling us that they've got a small fortune invested in their sales pipeline, but the transition between sales, between marketing and sales there seems to be a drop-off, which is resulting in first meetings not converting into second meetings. And a few tell us that they're worried because they're under pressure to do more with less. And they've already cut everything to the bone uh, when COVID struck, and they don't know how they're going to be able to hit their quota. Uh, I don't suppose any of these ring any bells, do they? Now, The challenge here is that we have to focus on the customer. And I'll finish on Mark Schaefer's fabulous observation. You must think as your customer, not about your customer. If you do not think as the customer and see the world through their eyes, feel what they feel, hear what they have to say, and be able to express your message as if you're a fly on their wall, as if you were them, then your marketing will be wasted. So let's do a quick round robin. Paul, let's have your key takeaway from today. Know yourself. Excellent. Martin? Uh, Stop thinking that sales is sales in itself, is recognize that what you're doing is just solving a problem for an individual and step outside the process and allow you and your team to think 
literally, just to think. It's creativity and discipline. Excellent. Alex? So I'd say that the, the more you can demonstrate that you truly understand the context within your customer finds them in, themselves in, and the better you can communicate that to the customer so they think, wow, you're, you're like a mind reader. How did you know me so well? The more you will sell. The more you use your products and services as a crutch, the harder you're going to find sales. And my final piece is service. You are there because of the customer, not in spite of them. It's your job to serve them, and therefore you must understand them, and you need to get yourself out of the equation. So on that happy note, it's Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. A huge thank you to Martin Lucas, Alex Moscow, and Paul Alexandru. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please email me at marcuskauke at me.com or m kauke at sandler.com and if you think you would be a great guest or there's somebody that you think would be a great guest then please put me in touch with them and let's see if we can get them on the show in the meantime stay safe and happy selling bye-bye